All right, guys, what's up? Um, this is uh, Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Um, and so we're actually going to kind of break it up in different sections. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and then we'll look at verses 11 through 14. And so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, just as you have probably already figured out, uh, Pastor Heath is a about a week ahead of us, and so he uh, worked through this chapter last week, and uh, we're going to do the same thing for this Sunday morning. Um, I don't necessarily know when we'll catch up, but... Um, just for at least, it seems, the foreseeable future, uh, we'll be continuing um, to be about a week behind, which will be helpful for you that, you know, you're going to be, as well as the students, already kind of hearing, um, you know, the, the, the passage for next week. Uh, you can have, you can obviously take some notes and, and see the way that Heath approaches it. Um, and, uh, and I think it'll be a really, a really good thing for y'all. All right. Let me uh, <clears throat> let me clear my throat, and then let me read Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest. But God said to him, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I become your father. And he also says in another place, <clears throat> excuse me, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he heard because of his re- and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So obviously there is a lot in this passage. So really the main body of, of, of this passage, this text, in really verse chapter um, 5, verse 1, all the way through 10, 18, um, can be divided in two movements. And this is from, this. a lot of this is going to be from the NIV application commentary series, but it can, um, it can divide in two movements. First addresses the son's appointment as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, all right? And that's chapter 5, verse 1 through 7 through 28. And um, and then the, the rest of it, um, verses 7 to 28, kind of 
kind of form, kind of closes that in. And an example of this would be if you read Hebrews 5, 1 through 3, it talks about every high priest is appointed from among men, is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, offer gifts, sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And this is why he offers sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And then you go to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 27 through 20. Eight, unlike the high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So this section starts talking about um, the high priest, continuing the thought really um, from the end of chapter 4 when it talks about we have this great high priest who is unable, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but is able because he has been tempted in every way which we are, yet he is without sin. And so it, it can be broken up into two different different passages there. Um, as we walk through this, we're introduced to a character, a person by the name of Mikhilzadek, or Mikhilzadek, or um, as I saw, I think the Noah came home with a crown from the children's ministry, and it, I think um, they'd drawn on their King Mel. So maybe we could just refer to him as King Mel. Um, I guess through the rest of this, we probably won't. But um, however you want to say, Mikelzadek, Mikelzadek, um, same guy. This is a this is kind of a mysterious character um, that pops up in three places throughout Scripture. One is from Genesis and from his encounter with Moses. Okay, and that's where the actual account of Mikelzadek happens. Right, this is actually where we meet Mikelzadek. This is actually where Abraham and Abraham interact. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he has. Mikelzadek blesses Abraham, um, and then he's referenced again in Psalms, and then he's referenced here in chapters five. And chapter 7. Now, we're not going to spend just a ton of time on him because chapter 7 is really going to go into a lot greater detail about who Melchizedek is. But here's a couple things that are interesting. And this is from the Christ-Centered Exposition Commentary talking about <clears throat> Melchizedek and Abraham. The verses begin with a description of the historical Melchizedek from Genesis 14. This is talking about Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 4. So we're getting a little bit ahead. But these verses begin with this historical account of Melchizedek from Genesis 14. He's identified as a king over the region of Salem and as a priest of God Most High. And surprisingly, he has this ministry as both king and priest, which sets him apart from any other priest or king in Israel. While Melchizedek's kingship is important, the author primarily develops the significance of Melchizedek's priesthood and how it relates to Jesus. And outside of Jesus and Melchizedek, Scripture identifies no one as both a king and a priest. In fact, Israel marked uh, markedly differentiated the roles of king and priest. No priest in the Old Testament could lawfully act as a king, and no king in the Old Testament could lawfully act as a priest. The opening verses of Isaiah 6 allude to this divide. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high, lofty, uh, seated on a high and lofty throne, and then the hem of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah died in disrepute because he defied God's laws, acting as a priest. And as a consequence, God struck him with leprosy and cut him off from the people. And you go read about that in 2 Chronicles 26, verses 16 through 21. 
And so thus the, the, the death of Uzziah demonstrates the divinely designated divide between the king and the priests in Israel. Yet, Hebrews 7 1 tells him Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and he is a priest of God Most High. And shockingly, he's even from outside the tribe of Israel. And so it's a very interesting character indeed. And so it goes on to talk a little bit more about Melchizedek, and you can read a little bit more about um, him there in the Christ-centered exposition commentary. Um, but it is a, an important distinction to make, um, and we'll, we'll talk a little more that we get to chapter seven. Um, there's been lots of different theories about who is Melchizedek. Um, you know, was he? Was he? Some some. There's been some theories that was he. Uh, like a pre-incarnate Jesus, and I, I, I really feel like most scholars and commentators do not believe that he was a pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, he was a separate historical figure. He was the king of Salem, and it appears that he was the priest of 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 God the Most High. Um, that there were still those even. Before in between Noah, in between Abraham, between the store of the Tower of Babel and Abraham, there were still those that were worshiping the Lord. And so Melchizedek seem, seems to be one of those, but he holds this unique title of king and priest, which is very much a foreshadow of who Jesus is as our king and as our priest. And so, anyway, that will take us back to chapter to chapter 5. So we're going to jump back into chapter 5. And talk a little bit um, about about this, um, and so really, again, chapter five, verses one through ten, provides an introduction on the topic of Christ's appointment as a Mikelzadekian. How about that for a word, Mikelzadekian High Priest? All right, and then, like I said, he, chapter seven, verses one through ten, continues the discussion on the superiority of Mikelzadek to the old covenant priesthood. Um, Hebrews 5, 1, 3, therefore introduces the reader to a discussion of the son's appointment as this high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's some universal pr- principles of the high priesthood, and, and we can look at these in verses 1 through 4. The author outlines four main principles related to the office of high priest described in the Old Testament. The first is the high priest originates from, um, from among the people. For every high priest taken among men, is appointed matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for the sin. So as verse 1 tells us, this high priest originates from among the people. doesn't come from somewhere else, doesn't come from outside, but he comes from among the people. The second thing is that the role of high priest is to represent people in matters related to God, especially through... Um, offering gifts and, and sacrifices, right? Uh, we see that when it says there that, he's, that this high priest is taken from among men appoints and matters retained to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. And he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also clothed with weakness, right? The high priest, number three, the high priest's weakness enables him to deal gently with people, and he is required to offer sacrifice for himself as well as for the people. Right? He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. And because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. Right? 
So, the high priest, his weakness enables him diligently with people, enables, enables him to sympathize with the people, and he is required to offer sacrifice both, both himself and the people. And number four, God is the one who confers the office of high priest by appointment. We see that in verse one and verse four. All right, verse one, every high priest taken from the people is appointed in matters pertaining to God. Verse 4, no one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called as God, called by God just as Aaron was. So, this person originates from among the people. He's able to represent the people in matters pertaining to God, especially through gifts, sacrifices. His weakness enables him to deal gently with people. And he's required to offer sacrifices for himself as well for the people. And it is God who is the one who appoints, right, who appoints this high priest. So, um... <clears throat> And again, when he, when the author, and this is again from the NIV application commentary, when the author states every high priest begins to lay this groundwork for an argument that spans all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, with an exception of chapter 5, verse 11 through 620. If you remember Sunday morning, um, Heath mentioned this, like he starts talking about this high priest, right, verses 1 through 10. He starts talking about the high priest, Melchizedek, all these different things. And then verse 11 kind of <clears throat> switch changes, shifts gears a little bit and says, you know, we have a lot to say about this, but it's difficult because some of you are too lazy to understand. Um, and so... I, I don't. I mean, it, it's it's obviously a, a very sharply said, right, wor strongly worded kind of statement like that. In, in some ways, it, it it makes me understand. You know, sometimes talking with teenagers, right? Like, I got a lot of stuff to say about this, but you guys are too lazy to understand. That's basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. So he, he there, there's a pause there, but then he picks back up after 620, arguing for the superiority of Christ, high priest on the basis of the commonly understood truths from the Old Testament concerning the office of high priest. Um, and so he's going to point out the role, the duty, and especially the appointment of the high priest are all governed by divine, divine standards. In essence, as he asserts, this is how the office of high priest works according to the scriptures. And so the high priest has solidarity with the people because he's taken from among them. Um, and this statement perhaps alludes to Exodus 28 verse 1 says, Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites. The Old Testament principle has to do with both the identity of the high priest with the people, which is the emphasis, and the distinction made between the priest and the people. The priests have special roles to fill and therefore are called out to be distinct. And so both the identity and the distinctiveness are important, right? They're called out from the people, but... They're also called to be distinct from the people as priests. And in 5.1, the author continues a theme that you can go back to chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, which talks about the sun came down from among, came down among humanity to accomplish something on our behalf. And Hebrews 2, right, remember, ends with a statement on Christ's identity with people as their high priest in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. And we go back and we can read that real quick, 2, 17 through 18. Remember this passage we read, it says, Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Um, and for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those 
who are also tempted. So this idea kind of harkens back to that, right? This high priest comes from among the people. He's distinct, but he's also able to identify with the people as high priests. And then in verses chapter 4, verses 16 through, excuse, sorry, getting a little tongue-tied here. Verse 4, chapter 14 through 16, the author uh, brings up this, this motif again with his treatment on Christ's sympathy for those that are being tempted. He now expounds the topic, beginning with the universally of the principle, priests come from among humanity, right? This priest, in a chapter 4, he's, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Um, he, is, he, is, he has been called out by God to be our high priest, but he's also come from among us because he became human, right? All these themes of, of the writer of Hebrews is trying to tie together are, are beginning to sort of come to the surface and begin to take a little more shape. The high priest represents people in matters related to God especially in the offering of gifts and sacrifices. And according to the Old Testament, the high priest shares in the general responsibilities performed by all priests, including leading in worship by participation in various offerings. However, the high priest alone offers the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Right, he, he, there's there's a high priest, and he he shares in general responsibilities with the other priests. Right, there's partnership with the other priests. There's different things that they all can do together, but only the high priest, the high priest alone, is the one who makes the sacrifices on the day of atonement, both the sacrifice for himself and a sacrifice for the people. And you go back and read this in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 25. And so this day of atonement, he would take two goats and a ram from among the Israelites. And after casting lots for the goats, the high priest slaughters one of the goats as a sin offering for the people. And the other goat is brought forth alive from the tent. The high priest lays his hands on the head of the scapegoat, confessing all the sins of the people before the Lord, then sends the goat away into the desert. By carrying out this part of God's instructions for the Day of Atonement, the high priest acts before God as representative on behalf of the people, making atonement for their sins. So the high priest, the one who is able to represent people in matters related to God, especially in the offering of gifts and sacrifices. Right? This Again, the high priest, not just any priest, the high priest is the only one in the Old Testament according to the law, that was able to go into the Holy of Holies and act on behalf of the people and and offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. The next principle that got brought up, and is an important aspect of the Day of Atonement, is a high priest must offer a special sacrifice for himself and his household before he can offer the goat sacrifices on behalf of the people. In this regard, the Old Testament reads, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offerings. Again, so Leviticus 16.11, where you can find this. The necessity stems from the priest being subject to weakness, right? So the priest has to make a sacrifice on his own, and the necessity for this stems from the fact that the priest is subject to weakness, which is what chapter 5, verse 2 says in Hebrews. The word translated subject to means to be surrounded by something. And so, for example, the commentary points out, for example, in Mark 9.42 and Luke 17.2, the word speaks of, of a millstone being tied around the scandal maker's neck. And later in Hebrews, the author crafts an effective word picture using this word to describe the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds the Christian community. 
And so being subject to, being surrounded by weakness, right? It's kind of engulfing almost. But then it's used in a positive way when it talks about this cloud of witnesses that happens later in Hebrews chapter 12. So here the high priest finds himself closed, closed in by his own weakness, right? Closed in, cornered, and obligated to offer sacrifices for own sins. However, this has redeeming value in that he enables him to deal gently with those who are ignorant and gone astray. Those who deal with sinners can err in one of several extremes, and this is, again, from the commentary. All this is from, from the commentary. Who deals with sinners can err in one of several extremes. Being a stoic, having a stoic indifference to sin, manifesting a mushy sentimentality that plays down its significance, or expressing anger born of exasperation. What is needed is a highly valuable quality of forbearance, which deals with sin seriously in the sinner patiently. The quality encourages openness on part of the people toward their high priest. Like So, in other words, the, the subject and the matter of sin is not something that's taken lightly. It's dealt seriously with. Um, but the sinner is dealt with patiently and gently. F.F. F. Bruce suggests the phrase, those who are ignorant and going astray should be taken um, as, as meaning those who go astray through ignorance. It's not just... It, it was just for this type of person, the person who, became, because of human wickedness, has unintentionally wandered off the path of the living, of the right living that God designed, the old covenant and sin offerings. The defiant sinner, however, blasphemes God and thus finds no such provision. And again, the author of Hebrews um, proclaims that the office of high priest is not one in which a person can enlist. All right, so... The writer goes on to talk about Jesus' appointment as the great high priest. And again, I know there's a there's a lot in here to unpack. But he talks about his appointment. Jesus appointed high priest, rather being conferred simply by virtue of his relationship to God, the path to his appointment was one of suffering, obedience, and endurance. This motive of suffering as a prerequisite to exaltation agrees with the writer's theology elsewhere, like chapter 2, verse 9. And it's expressed here with stark, compelling images. The phrase, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, makes an overt reference to Jesus' incarnation in general. But the rest of verses 7 through 8 hints at a specific event. Now, there's some scholars that maybe don't agree with this, but the NIV application commentary, the commentary here, um, makes this connection, feels pretty strong about this connection. But verses 7 through a, where it says, During his early life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The, the commentator puts out that this is more than likely referencing or hinting at, um, would probably be a better, better term, hinting at, uh, Jesus agonizing surrender to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, although some commentators have found fault with linking this passage to the Gospel Garden accounts, others have understood the one who could save him from death as a clear allusion to Jesus' request for the cup of suffering to pass by him. And while the outcome of Gethsemane may suggest that God did not hear that prayer in the sense of exempting Christ from the cross experience, God did hear it, affirming the righteousness of His Son's reverent submission through the resurrection. And so, there's a lot there, but um, that, the, the cries and the tears probably point back to um, that, that account. And then, verses 5 through 9 
proclaims the happy result of the Son's reaching this perfection. He became the source of our eternal salvation. The affirmation links the, um, the perfection process closely to the cross where our great high priest offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin. For the author of Hebrews is the blood of Christ shed in his suffering death that opens the door to salvation. And then salvation, of course, comes to those who obey. And, um, and so now it moves us in verses 11 through 13, which, again, can present a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, not so much maybe, a, I guess, a challenge, but, but let, me, let me get there. Sorry, I'm going to re-click some things here. And so it's, it's this warning right against immaturity and stagnation. Um, the main idea that the Christ Center Exposition Commentary points out is that we must steadily presume, pursue maturity in the faith by digesting the deep truth of God's words. And so, um, the diagnosis, okay, let's read verse 11 through 14 real quick. We have a great deal to say about this. It's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. And although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. You know, one who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Um, and so there seems to be, in verse 11, we have a great deal to say about this difficult explains, and you become too lazy to understand. You become too lazy almost to hear. And, and now the symptom of that is sort of you, this childish understanding that you have of the faith. Uh, verse 12, the author um, really pinpoints the root cause of this congregation's spiritual immaturity. Not only can they not understand spiritual concepts like Christ's priesthood, but they've also forgotten the fundamental things of the faith. Even though they've had plenty of time to become teachers themselves, they actually need teachers to reteach them the elementary doctrines of the Christian faith. And so this failure to like know and to ultimately grow, this failure to grow in their faith, they're, they're really back to square one. Um, and they're, they're, they're almost, they, the writer of, of Hebrews is saying they, they almost, they don't even understand quite the basics anymore of their own, of their own faith. And so the, the text teaches this important truth by getting back to the basics. Certain fundamental principles and doctrinal foundations are prerequisites for understanding more mature and complex truths. This is from Christ and Exposition Commentary. Before we can handle the upper-level courses, we must master the entry-level classes. We must grasp basic truths as basic levels before we can move forward. What are these basic principles? The author lays them out at the beginning of chapter 6. Um, and so that's something we'll look at more depth when we get to that chapter. But labeling these principles God's revelation communicates that Scripture is God's spoken word. This is God's revelation to the people. And so, the reality is to listen, to pay attention, to not forget. And those are all things that, that Heath talked about last Sunday. It's something that we have to continue to do. And ultimately, it's our responsibility. 
um, the passage indicates indicts any Christians who are spiritually regressing when they should be growing. There's great internal peril in spiritual infancy, for it puts one in danger of falling away from God. Therefore, the author teaches Christians two important lessons about our responsibility to mature in the faith. It is an individual believer's responsibility to grow in spiritual understanding, so the congregation as a whole is better to equip, is better equipped to faithfully minister the gospel to those in need. It is the church's responsibility to teach individual believers. Sadly, many congregations drink nothing but milk because that is all their pastors are feeding them. So that's more, I guess, on, on me than, than on you. But um, it, it's it's something that we have to evaluate, but also we have to take responsibility for as well. Now, again, there's a lot to unpack there, and I wanted to just be as specific and walk through and really stay close to the commentaries and, and the text, obviously, as much as possible. But where we'll be going on Sunday, we, we will be focusing a bit on the high priest um, role, but we focus, we've focus we been focusing on that quite a bit, obviously, and that's something that's going to be picked back up in chapter 7. And so I really wanted to go over the first 10 verses and look through those and kind of understand the high priest role, but we are really going to focus a lot more on this Sunday on spiritual immaturity, right? Uh, one of the questions we ask is evaluate your own life, think about areas maybe you're spiritually mature and maybe an infant in the faith. Uh, maybe even have students think about these, right? You know, they don't say them out loud, but maybe think about these. What are some areas in my life that I'm spiritually immature? And I think a good way to, to pull this up and help students see through this would be because um, sometimes we automatically say, well, I guess I'm not reading my Bible enough, or I guess I'm not praying enough. Those are important, but what Scripture lines out time and time again is it is it lines out fruits of the Spirit, specifically Galatians chapter 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Um, are you growing in these things? Are these things becoming evident in your life, slowly but surely? Um what excuses do you often hear regarding one's own ignorance of biblical knowledge or spiritual understanding? What excuses do maybe we find our own selves using? Um, this is a good thing to kind of uh, think through there. Sorry, I got distracted my phone. Um, let's see. I'll kind of get some, some more questions, but those are going to be the main ones. We're really going to focus in on uh, verses uh, verses 10, or excuse me, 11 through 14, and, and talking about that. We're going to bring up again this idea of the incarnation, um, you know, again, why it's a big deal. And, and I know that might be something that you're like, man, we're really um, talking about this a lot. Um but I think it's something for us to continue to bring up time and time again with students and to make sure that they're fully grasping um, it. So, because it, it's key to understanding, like, what's beat right. End of verse 4, we have this high priest who's able to sympathize with us, continues to go on talking about Jesus as our great high priest, but then it talks about there's some of you that are spiritually immature and are lacking. But the good news is still back up there in the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4. Is that this high priest is still one who invites us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. 
that we may find help in our time of need, right? Like this isn't this isn't to make us just feel horrible and bad and awful and be like, well, I guess I'm just uh, you know up the creek, so to speak, right? But this is to remind us that Jesus loves us and He invites us into His presence, but also at the end warns us, um, especially again in chapter six, that there's those of you who are in danger of 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 falling away from the faith because of your immaturity and your inability to handle solid, solid food. So that's that's the main stuff um, as far as the text goes. I'll be hopefully getting questions to you tomorrow. Um, again, I apologize dealing with a little bit of a sinus infection yesterday, and so it's put me a day behind. Uh, but all that stuff will be getting to you tomorrow. Hopefully, again, this... This, this podcast is is helpful to you, uh, beneficial to you, and it's something that, um, you know, I, I, and I would also just encourage you to, um, if you haven't picked up a commentary, do so. Um, again, we're going to continue to get into some of these bigger texts. Um, we're going to get into some of these texts that are like a little bit tough to understand, um, that are going to challenge us, they're going to stretch us, they're going to make us uncomfortable. But I'd remind you what the Bible Project said, um, these aren't meant to scare us, but they are meant to make us uncomfortable, right? And, and hopefully that's kind of what is, is happening. All right. Be praying for you guys. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you between uh, now and Sunday. We'll talk to you later. See you.